When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you're listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btofer at toferarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Asan Abushadi to talk about her book that she co-authored, The Architecture of Ramsey's Wisa Wasef. Asan is an architect specializing in heritage at Megawa, and I know I mispronounced that. During her studies, she worked at the Regional Architecture Collection of the Rare Books and Special Collections Library of the American University in Cairo. The book was co-authored by Conchita Anyorve Chergi. Asan, uh, thank you very much for being here with me and talking today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So before we begin, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Um, well, I studied architecture at the American University in Cairo, um, and that's where I met Conchita. Um, during uh, my third years of study, my third year of study, um, I had applied for a work-study position at the library archive, um, and I was assigned to the architecture collection where Conchita was the curator. <clears throat> and that's where, like, uh, we saw Wasif's arch- archive is, um, is like, held. Oh, okay, perfect. Um, okay. Uh, so during my third year of architecture uh, studies, um, I applied for a work-study position at the library archive um, where I met Conchita, who was the curator of the architecture collection. Um, initially, um, I worked on the on the archive of uh, Gamal Bakri, um, a postmodernist Egyptian architect, as well as Kamel Amin, who was a student of Frank Lloyd Wright. Um, as these were like newly acquired collections that needed processing. Uh, but during my time there, like Conchita and I like became very close. She became like a very uh, good mentor. Um, and so once I graduated, we we decided to like write a book on Ramses Wisa Wasif uh, together. Uh, so we started writing uh, the book about Ramses Wisa Wasif, who's an Egyptian architect that um, 
was like rediscovering what Egyptian architecture is uh, in the mid 20th century, especially focusing on like local materials, local craft um, and local heritage. Um, and he's like, he's most known for uh, the Ramses Wisa Wasif Art Center, as well as the Mahmoud Mukhtar Museum. Um, and then two of his churches, Coptic Orthodox churches, one based uh, in Zamalek Cairo and the other one in Heliopolis. Uh, despite like um, being like a very well-known architect in Egypt, very little is known about his architecture. And that's what drove us to write this book. All right, great. And so that you kind of took my, you kind of already read my mind on the first question. You know, I'll admit that in my seven years of architecture school, I've never heard of Ramsey's and I'm going to take a guess. A lot of North American architecture students haven't. However, his story is very interesting. And so the first uh, thing I found very interesting is, you know, most, at least most architects I know, they do have an interest for art and they might even practice some art, except for most of us, it never leaves our offices as a hobby. Whereas it seems like in Ramsey's work, it's most of his architecture is based around the intersection of art and education, art and architecture. Uh, yes, um, there are a few examples where um, he did uh, focus on like a lot of architectural details that were kind of borderline with like um, craftsmanship or like uh, artistic uh, uh, fields. Um, so he did design like a lot of stained glass windows uh, for residential buildings as well as religious buildings. Uh, he did work on like some ceramic pieces as well as stucco pieces uh, for like ceiling fixtures, lighting fixtures, um, just wall decorations. Um, he even did like some carpentry design. Um, so he was quite versatile uh, in like how much of the building he designed. And a follow-up to that is, at least from what I could tell, and it does talk about this in the book, it seems like almost all of his residential projects were always for the residence of some craftsmen, whether it's weavers or potters or farmers, which we could say is a craftsperson. And so I guess I'm just curious over a little more elaboration. You know, why is that? Is that a personal choice? Was it because of his own passion? Um, well... In the 1950s, he started to develop the Ramses Wisa Wasif Art Center. Um, he did feel that like children had like an innate um, sense of creativity, which he wanted um, to nurture. So he created this space um, where like children could like learn to weave and express their creativity without like any formal edu uh, art education. Um, and as like some of these weavers uh, grew, he did build some houses for them. Um, so that's like one aspect. And then um, in that same kind of like er uh, rural area, um, he did also design some houses for some of his uh, art students. He was a professor at the Faculty of Fine Arts. Um, and so like at the time, like a lot of um, these like up-and-coming artists uh, were looking to like also like you know have their houses like in that rural area and him being like their professor um, designed a couple of them and so you mentioned that he was a professor and so I, I, I let it slip in my last question when I actually said education but of course later on in the book 
he does seem to have the passion of art, architecture, and education. And so there's a lot of case studies in here, and sadly, we just can't go through them all. But the ones I found in particular interest were the ones that, as an educator myself, I thought were very interesting that he had his students participate in the construction, or children as well. I know some of the examples that stand out most in my mind are the chicken coops or silos. And so the question I have for you then is, you know, from my understanding, these projects are still standing, even though they were built by children and students. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that's correct. Um, so, like in parallel, while he was teaching these children uh, weaving, he was also teaching them to use, like, uh, how to make mud brick, uh, how to build with it. Um, you know, like making sure uh, the structural stability of like domes and vaults. Um, so, since uh, a lot of these were children, uh, they can't really, you know, start building a house. It's uh, out of their scale. They can't really reach. Uh, so he started with like small projects that would be uh, manageable for like a child's height. Um, and so like the silos and the chicken coops uh, are like low-lying uh, structures um, that were easy for the children to practice on. And and so like over the years, like uh, we saw us if like did have like his own team of uh mud brick builders that he would use uh, for like all his mud brick structures. Great. And uh, you hinted at this before. And so I want to come back to it. You had mentioned that uh, his use of local materials. And again, going back to him being faculty, you know, there, there, you talk about the trip he took with students that kind of opened his eyes, we'll say to local building materials and sustainability, even ahead of their time a little bit. And so one thing I found very interesting was the idea that his buildings are very distinct and that a regional Egyptian style. However, the political landscape was that most of Egypt was trying to mimic Europe, particularly politically and building wise. And so I'd love to hear more about the fact that his buildings, while they are of a regional style, they actually stood out because they were a regional style in a region trying to pretend to be somewhere else. Um. Yeah, well, at the time, like, Egypt was very cosmopolitan. Um, so, like, especially in Cairo, uh, there were a lot of Italians, a lot of uh, French, um, Greeks, um, and, like, Egyptians uh, and Turkish. Uh, so uh, the architecture was very much influenced uh, by, like, Europe. Um, and... Um, at the time, like there were a lot of scholarships for uh, architecture students to study uh, at the Beaux Arts in France, uh, which included uh, Wissa Wasif and Hassan Fathi. Um, so they studied there and like received a kind of European uh, formation in architecture, and then they came back. Um, and so, like all these different like influences were taking place in Cairo, you know, like the Greek and the Italian and the French, uh, and so. Uh, both of them, Hassan Fathi and Ramses Wissawasif, went on this trip to like Upper Egypt in Nubia, where they kind of like rediscovered this traditional architecture and tried to like think about, you know, this new traditional Egyptian identity for architecture that was not as influenced um, by like the European styles. Right. And as I had mentioned, you know, he actually employs a lot of passive heating and cooling strategies you know, again, at a time where that was not, you know, nowadays sustainability and passive cooling is kind of buzzwords that every project uses. However, the time frame of these buildings, it is somewhat revolutionary. 
You know, in particular, I'd love to hear more about the passive heating and cooling strategies in buildings that don't have the same mechanical systems we have here in North America. Uh, yes. So, like, um, some of his mud brick um, structures, like, already, like, they have, um, you know, the regular passive cooling systems that we know, you know, like having uh, high ceilings, vaulted ceilings or domed ceilings for to, like, facilitate, like, air circulation, uh, the rising of hot air away from, like, the the space that's being used uh but he did also like implement other like less lesser known um uh, systems he would have like some buildings that had uh, a double wall system uh which would prevent like hot air from entering like warming up the walls and warming up the inside um and uh, in the Habib Gorgi Museum, for example, um, he used the system uh, twofold. So not only uh, to contribute to the cooling of the building, but also uh, this double wall was designed in such a way that uh, indirect light would come in and light up the niches where like, some of the sculptures uh, were being exhibited. Right, absolutely. And so you mentioned, we, we talked about the museum a little bit, and we've hinted at probably his most known work, and I, we have, I think we should kind of try to steer back. You had mentioned his most known project being the Ramses We Saw With Seth Art Center. And this is an important project, not, for his, not just for his style, but for all the artistic contributions it had many years later. Uh, yes. So like at the center and like up until today, um, they continue to produce like a lot of tapestries that um, show different like traditional uh, and contemporary like scenes of Egyptian uh, life, um, especially like uh, rural uh, life. Um, and a lot of these tapestries have actually like been exhibited at like many international exhibitions. Um, so like the center, like it's known um, like internationally uh, for its tapestries more than for its architecture. And I think that was one of the driving points for this book, you know, to like kind of like highlight the architectural work um, that this architect artist uh, produced. Um, so at the center, like apart from having like the galleries and the studios or like these tapestries uh, are created, um, there's also like a couple of uh, houses uh, that he built for himself for um, his um, daughter's father-in-law <laughs> uh, and like his sister. Um, and apart from like um, in Egypt, uh, this might be like the most well-known, followed by the Mahmoud Mukhtar Museum that was built for um, one of Egypt's uh, more, more famous like sculptors, as well as uh, the Marashli Church in Zamalek, uh, which was also like uh, a highlight for like contemporary Coptic uh, Orthodox Church architecture. Right, and so you had hinted before that, uh, and I think it was actually before the interview, so I should. But uh, you had mentioned that he he actually can be a little more well known in circles outside of the architecture community, and I think you had said that in particular his stained glass window work. Is that correct, or was it other realms that he would be more well known in? Um. Yes. So, 
Well, uh, a lot of his buildings are well known for his stained uh, glass projects. Um, although they might not, a lot of people might not necessarily know that these are attributed to him. Um, I think like some of his projects are very famous without a lot of people associating them to him. Um, maybe like only architects might know this. And even then, like a lot of architects will focus more on the architecture than the stained glass. So um, it's kind of very interesting how like the different, uh, like this understanding of who he is as a person is very fragmented in the field. So like the artist will only focus on like the art, the architects will only focus on the architecture and the educators will like focus on like his pedagogy. And so, as I said, you know, there's plenty of case studies, both for his built work and some of his non-extent stuff, great photographs. Sadly, we won't be able to do that, especially with the listeners not having the book in front of them. But so the question I have, though, is, you know, as we wrap up, so since the book's been released, what uh, what have you been working on? What projects have kind of occupied your time since the book's been released? Um, well, I'm currently uh, pursuing a master's degree. Um so I've kind of uh, been working on uh, my thesis, which is focused on um, what like sub um, underground water in Cairo and looking at like water uh, structures. So particularly like cisterns. Very interesting. Perhaps we could talk about that again mm-hmm. in the future if you release something. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Yeah, thank you. And for everyone listening, the book is The Architecture of Ramses Wiso Wasef. I want to thank everyone for listening and hope everyone has a great day.